So today we have Charlie Winter back on the show. And first of all, thank you for coming back on the show, Charlie. Thank you for having me. And Charlie has been continuing his research on Islamic State propaganda. We had him on the show, oh, maybe a month, month and a half ago or so. And he was talking about his last paper, The Virtual Caliphate, Understanding Islamic State Propaganda Strategy. And Charlie has topped this off with another paper that he's done for the Quilliam Foundation called Documenting the Virtual Caliphate. So it's, like I said, almost a continuation of his previous research, but he's found some really interesting insights. So we're going to talk about that today. And just for our listeners, Charlie Winter is a senior researcher and programs officer at the Quilliam Foundation, which is located in the United Kingdom. So once again, thank you for coming back on the show, Charlie. It's great to be back. Thanks for um, thanks for letting me carry on talking about Islamic State propaganda. Oh, you're welcome. So to start off with, let's just talk about what the time frame of your research was and how many propaganda events did you record in this period? So... Uh, last time I spoke on the Loopcast was, I think it was early July. That was right on the back of the Virtual Caliphate, um, the, the first paper that you were just speaking about. And right on the, the, the heels of, of that being released, I wanted to, to really add to it and add a bit more depth to the, the, the narrative section of that report. So it was broadly about the... Islamic State's propaganda strategy, but a, a holistic approach. So looking at the dissemination structures, the target audiences, as well as the kind of narratives that, that, that really build into the entire Islamic State brand. So what I wanted to do was take those narratives, take the, the things that I delineated uh, in that study, and then take a sample period of, of time, gathering together everything that Islamic State was releasing officially. So all of the photo essays, video reports, uh, longer kind of video documentaries, audio statements, radio bulletins, written articles, uh, da'wah materials, literally everything that Islamic State was producing and releasing officially. Uh, and then put all of that through the narrative uh, metrics that I'd set out in, in the virtual caliphate. So for 30 days, for the month of Shawwal, which is uh, right after Ramadan, 17th of July until the 15th of August. I set about collecting everything uh, by essentially going through all of Islamic State's uh, official hashtags. They're, they're kind of emerged organically over time, but they've very much got an official nature to them now. And Islamic State supporters use them rather like combination locks. So if you get the right combination of hashtags, you can cut out all of the counter-narrative stuff, all of the uh, governments who are kind of doing counter-messaging on Twitter, all of the bots, uh, and you can really get to the pure-driven snow of Islamic State propaganda for each particular uh, propaganda production unit. So within those 30 days, I recorded a total of 1,146 separate events. So when I say event, I mean, uh, I suppose you could say unit or, or uh, something like that, but essentially something that delineates a, a set of data, a set of media that are trying to convey a particular propagandistic message. So it can be kind of photos or uh, videos or audio or whatnot. But within 
those 1,146 items, there were there's a, a huge amount of, of uh, daily bulletins that these are things that, that are released on a, a daily basis in multiple different languages. So I had recorded originally each of these in different languages. But in order to, to get as nuanced an analysis as possible, I grouped the daily bulletins by, uh, by day rather than by language. So I recorded eight bulletins in languages from Arabic to Russian and Kurdish and French and Turkish and so on. Uh, I grouped them and recorded them as one event. Uh, so that meant I was left with a total of 892 propaganda events. And it was those 892 that I set about analyzing as, as rigorously as possible right after I translated them from Arabic. And with all of this information that you've gathered, what was the methodology that you used to put this into more of a understandable, categorized set of research? So... I first of all, I, I'm not a, uh, a a tech whiz as much as I wish I was. Uh, so I, I wasn't using algorithms. I, I really would love to know if there is an algorithm uh, or a way of using algorithms to, to to mine data in this way. So if there is, please, someone who's listening, get get in touch because uh, it would make my life a, a whole lot easier. Um, as it was though, um, I essentially spending so much time monitoring Islamic State propaganda over the last year anyway, I had put together a pretty um, firm understanding of, of how they disseminate their propaganda, how they use Twitter primarily above all other social media to and above forums as well to disseminate propaganda to, to a mass audience. So, so recognizing the, the tools they use and the way they use hashtags, I essentially reverse engineered their dissemination uh, methodology. So every morning, as soon as I get into work, I would uh, make myself a coffee, then sit down at my computer and, and go through each of the Islamic State's uh, 38 different media houses. So the provincial outlets, but also the things like Muasasat al-Furqan, the Furqan Foundation, the Al-Hayat Media Center, Al-Himmah Library, etc., etc. And I would essentially skip back the previous 24 hours looking at everything that had been uh, released alongside that hashtag in the previous the previous day uh, and then when something new came up I'd, I'd put that into my um, I'd plug that into my my archive which was uh, literally an, an Excel spreadsheet uh, but I'd record that alongside the obviously the date, the location, the media production unit, the medium, so whether it was video or audio or photo set. Um, and I was doing all of this in Arabic during the data collection period. It was, it was an overwhelming amount of data to be translating as I was doing it. So essentially at the end of the month, I had this, this big pile of Arabic data that I translated in the, in a, the week that followed. Uh, and from then, it was possible to discern that the primary narratives that were being conveyed in each piece. And I mean, as I said in the, the last podcast I, I did with you, the, the narratives that I've, I've gone for, the groupings that I, I've uh, discerned, they're totally non-discrete. They're, they're not exclusive categories in, in any way. But it's, it's very easy to see what the primary thing that Islamic State is trying to convey in each one is. So... By doing that, I, I could 
break up the data into more bite-sized chunks. But still, I was left with this this huge preponderant focus on on utopia and war. Um, well over three quarters of the entire data set was was taken up with with those two narratives. So I, I inserted some subcategories for for war and utopia. So I could break them up even more. Um, and that's been particularly interesting for me to see what the Islamic State propagandists want their war machine to to look like from within and without, and what they deem to be the key components to an Islamic utopia as they understand it, how they want to sell themselves, how they want to brand the the movement that they're uh, trying to advertise for, because essentially this is just a uh, a massive marketing operation. It's it's all about trying to create a comprehensive image and be the brand to beat have the, the the unique selling point of the caliphate, but also explain why it's a, a true utopia, why it's something to to shout about. So having this this big data set in front of me meant that I could see the composite elements of what the Islamic State brand is in in a far more detailed manner than than I'd I'd been able to before. And I think that it, it's really well, I mean, for for me on a personal level, it's it's added some some uh, a greater level of, of nuance to my understanding of it. But hopefully, it's it's presented a, a more manageable way of understanding this huge uh, operation from from the outside as well. And having read the report, and also there was a recent article that highlighted the report as well. You know, there are some really interesting observations you found things that were what I'd call eye-opening and and you mentioned the utopia factor um maybe just for our listeners that might not have heard the last talk which I highly would like you to listen to it if you're listening to this one but maybe you could just quickly um outline the main themes that you found in both of your papers but the ones that were more important in this new paper okay so in the last report the six narratives that I identified were brutality. Uh, so this is kind of ultraviolence and the executions that are meted out to alleged spies or, or dissenters or Western journalists or Japanese journalists, aid workers, etc., etc., etc. The things which are really trying to get as big an audience as possible to be as afraid as possible, but also at the same time, gratify uh, supporters at home, uh, gratify ideological supporters. So the, the next narrative after that was mercy. So this was looking specifically at the structures of, of repentance that are uh, very kind of pronounced in Islamic State and certainly something which was boasted about a lot during the run-up to and uh, first few months after uh, the Declaration of Islamic State's Caliphate on 29th of June last year. So this was footage or photo essays of, of people repenting en masse and then being accepted uh, by open-armed Islamic State fighters into the, the Islamic State itself. So, so people who are being forgiven and, and uh, given amnesty, even if they were previously opposed to what Islamic State was doing. The narrative after that is belonging. So this was something which was primarily conveyed by videos and photo essays, again, of, of foreign fighters having a good time together. 
really stressing the, the importance of the collective and the idea that they really have left their home countries, left the grievance they face there, the identity crisis they face there, and arrived in the caliphate. And it's, it's just really excellent. They've, they've got everything they want. The grievances that they experienced at home, the, the dislocation, the marginalization, the isolation that they felt in their home societies, these videos told the opposite story to that. They show people from different walks of life, different nationalities, hanging out in parks together, drinking tea, singing nasheeds together. Uh, and it was really telling a story of, of belonging, of the collective. So the next narrative after that is, is victimhood. And uh, victimhood, I mean here that the victimhood which is used and, and exaggerated and magnified and manipulated by most other Salafi jihadist groups. The, the idea that there's a global conspiracy, a global war uh, being waged against Sunni Muslims the world over and that children are being killed, women are being killed, old people are being killed, mosques are being destroyed uh, by either the Crusaders, quote-unquote, the Zionists, quote-unquote, uh, and kind of you name it, the, the enemy of Islam. So things which are really focusing on that. So we'd see a lot of photo reports and videos showing dead people, essentially, dead people and, and destroyed mosques. And it was a way of legitimizing uh, and justifying Islamic State's existence. So I believe that's number four. Now, number five is uh, military-themed propaganda. So this is essentially anything to do with Islamic State's war machines. So whether it's preparation or, or uh, offensives, operations, uh, whether it's martyrdom, eulogies, that kind of thing. Uh, anything that, that broadly looks at the military aspect of, of life within Islamic State. The last category is utopia. So here I'm talking about the Islamic State caliphate, the different things that make that caliphate up. Uh, the different elements of it which Islamic State's propagandists are trying to sell and, and, and brand themselves as, as living within. So there's a, a lot of different subcategories within war, uh, military-themed propaganda and, and utopia-themed propaganda, uh, which we should definitely get into uh, a bit later on. But just to give you an idea of, of uh, the kind of proportion uh, of each narrative within the, the Shawal data set. So... Brutality, and this uh, is a finding that I was expecting, but also something which I think is important to, to recognize. Brutality was, was present, uh, ultraviolence was present, but a much smaller proportion than would, was predicted. Um, I mean, it was only 2.13% of, of the entire set of, of propaganda events in, in those 30 days that it was people being beheaded or, or killed horribly as a, as a warning to uh, potential dissenters, potential rebels. Um, and that is, is striking because, of course, in Western media, uh, not just Western media, I should say, uh, all we really hear about when it comes to Islamic State is either rumors that uh, the leaders of, of the group have been killed or uh, some new crime, some new horrible execution that they've committed and, and boasted about. Uh, obviously, they do still do that, but a much smaller amount of their propaganda is, is focused on that than, than first meets the eye because of this uh, disproportionate focus on this ultraviolence. And I mean, that's, that's inherent 
in propaganda of the deed like this. It, it's it's built around getting a reaction, built around uh, causing outrage. So so we have to expect that. The next uh, narrative um, was uh, mercy. So this was something which was really really surprisingly not present in the in the data set. It was only there in in four items. So four out of eight hundred ninety two. So that's point four five percent of the entire month's worth of of propaganda. And I think that this is indicative of the fact that. Among other things, Islamic State is a lot more focused on consolidating control rather than expanding. So selling yourself as a, a group that will accept uh, former enemies into its ranks, that will, will allow uh, repentance, treat people with amnesty, um, is, is all well and good if you are expanding, if you're, you're trying to bring people into the, the movement and give people a way out to, to kind of facilitate as rapid expansion as, as is possible. But if you're consolidating control, really, I think Islamic State is trying to, to, to ward off internal dissent, and they really want to be focusing on the fact that any sort of rebellion or, or espionage is treated with the most unwavering uh, level of brutality, uh, and that really there is no room for even thinking about going against Islamic State's program be it in Syria, Iraq, or Khorasan, sorry, Afghanistan, um, or, or Libya. So mercy was present, but it was certainly a lot less present than it had been in, in months gone by. So for belonging, there were, again, much less than usual. There are only eight items, uh, mostly photo reports. I think there was one video. Uh, and again, this was, this was different to the uh, 12 months first 12 months of the Islamic State Caliphate, we had uh, still similar kinds of things. So, so fighters hanging out together and celebrating Eid together. But there wasn't the same amount of focus as there had been in the past. There weren't the English language videos in which uh, fighters would be talking about how wonderful life in, in the Caliphate is. There, there wasn't the same kind of open calls for people to, to go and join them in Syria and Iraq, where these uh, feed, uh, these sets of media were, were uh, emerging from, and again, that's that's indicative of the fact that perhaps priorities on the ground are changing. So after that, there was uh, victimhood, war, and utopia. So six point eight eight four percent of the month data set were focused on conveying the victimhood narrative. So a lot of dead children, dead old people, destroyed mosques, uh, and interestingly, a lot of uh, destroyed infrastructure, so bridges and, and hospitals. I've actually been seeing a lot more of that even in the, 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 the months since the Showal data set. I mean, it, it says something quite, quite strong about the, the, the targets that are being, um, or certainly the, the, the collateral damage of airstrikes. And I think that collateral damage is really the Islamic State's prop propagandists friend they they really uh can tell a very strong story by showing uh, as much damage as possible as many innocent lives claimed by airstrikes as possible uh when it comes to military propaganda so military themed propaganda uh this is where we're getting into the bigger numbers there were 331 separate military events so that's 37.12 uh, percent of the the entire data set and 
military events, I broke down into uh, summary or, or roundup kind of things, so the, the daily bulletins, uh, and then defensive operations, offensive operations, attritional warfare, uh, martyrdom, eulogies, and, and aftermath, so kind of looking at uh, the booty and the, the dead bodies of the enemy, that kind of thing. The final and biggest narrative by far, 52 0.57% was, was utopia. So that's 469 events out of 892. Now, this was, again, something that I, I, I really expected because it's evident how much of a focus there is on, on the state-building side of Islamic State uh, when it comes to what the propagandists are producing. But, th I mean, it was pretty significant that this was so much focused upon at the expense of, of everything else. So when it comes to utopia... I broke that down because there were so many separate units that, that could be grouped together into loose groupings, but uh, otherwise it was just this big kind of mass of data that, that, that was interesting, but not as useful as it was when it was subcategorized. So within the utopia, there are the composite elements of the utopia, and they are economic activity, uh, services provision, landscapes and, and wildlife, uh, justice, justice system. Um, and, and things like that, but essentially things which are central to any state, any working state where the population is is uh, meant to be happy and self-sufficient and able to uh, empower itself and, and, and really have a good life. And you could tell that Islamic State were really trying, that the propagandists were really trying to convey the fact that life is going on as normal within the territories held by IS, in spite of the fact that there is a international coalition dropping bombs on it, in spite of the fact that Bashar al-Assad is, uh, is fighting it in Syria and you have the Kurds and the Iraqi government and the Shia militias fighting it in Iraq and let alone Libya and Afghanistan. But, but really the, the focus is on showing the fact that this is a, a practic practicable alternative to the status quo and the the sheer volume of events which are focusing on on conveying this idea really to me is is very striking it shows that islamic states propagandists are not only really trying to prioritize uh, the delivery delivery of this narrative on the internet where they can attract new recruits and kind of compound on the fact that they are delivering a, a, a caliphate but also if you think about this in the offline world, so this is propaganda which is being shown on media point TV screens around uh, around Iraq and Syria and, and the rest of the, the the provinces claimed by Islamic State. So these little kind of makeshift places where they uh, put up projectors or, or big screens and shove some plastic chairs in front of them, so people can kind of see the the latest news uh, from Islamic State. Uh, official outlets, but also go to collect newspapers and electronic magazines, which have all of these photo essays, have all of these videos on them. And if you are living in, in a great deal of hardship and your uh, neighbors are being bombed, you're being bombed, uh, your sons have been conscripted, you're being coerced into doing things that you don't want to do, but you also are having this constant, huge volume of propaganda shoved down your neck, uh, offline um, at these media points but but also elsewhere constantly being handed out it sells a very strong message and 
even if you don't believe it, and I, I strongly believe that people, the majority of people won't believe it, but it still does exercise a measure of, of intellectual control uh, on Islamic State's part. And I think that this is something which is fundamentally impo- important to the group's longevity in Iraq and Syria and the rest of the places where it claims to have a presence, the rest of the places where it is attempting to administer as well as fight. And I think it's a really critical part of the overall uh, effort to challenge Islamic State on the ground, that that we need to recognize that propaganda isn't something which is just being limited to social media. It's not something which is just being used by recruiters as an evidence base. It's also a, a lever of control. It's a way of monopolizing the discourse uh, the local discourse, the regional discourse on what's happening within the territories and a way of shoring up support, buoying up support among locals who are being forced to live under IS control. Do you take into consideration that during this month of your research it was a month of Eid and that potentially this strong focus on utopia has anything to do with that? Well, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's the fact that it did begin immediately after Ramadan, uh, that, that it's something which is immediately obvious in the, the, the data set that uh, the propagandists are taking this into account as well. So in the first few days after the, the 17th of July, when I started collecting, the, the, the primary focus above all else, I mean, there was no violent propaganda at all. There was no military propaganda at all for the first few days. It was just looking at, at kind of social occasions, at kids playing in, in theme parks in, in Raqqa or Tabqa. Uh, it was people praying, uh, zakat distribution and collection, uh, but, but predominantly distribution to, to people, needy people, uh, handing out butchered, fresh butchered meats and, and that kind of thing. I mean, there was a, a real kind of shift as the month progressed away from the social life side of things and also away from the religious life side of things. Um, and, and that is indicative of, of the, the propagandists moving with the time. So they were really focused on delivering the image of Eid when it was near Eid. Uh, but as we got further away, they went to more kind of daily life things that, that happen every day. So the, I mean, road building and roadworks and street cleaning, things which happen on a daily basis and are very easy to to make a very uh, pretty boring photo report of, uh, but also pretty low risk as well. I mean, there was a, a lot more of that. I think that the kind of road-associated photo essays, uh, and so, I mean, this is, just as a side note, this is indicative of the fact that a lot of this stuff is very boring and benign-seeming. Um, but but it's used as filler. It's used as uh, a means of creating this constant stream of information and and visual uh, representations of of how Islamic State is administering itself, how it's kind of looking after the people and providing services. But but what didn't change uh, from Eid to the end of the month was the fact that Utopia consistently was the most popular, most prominent featuring theme. So while within Utopia it shifted uh, from religion to services provision to economic activity, etc., 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 the broad re- ratio that we're looking at stayed more or less uh, half of all propaganda being focused on, on the state itself, on, on services provision. Um, 
on uh, religion, on justice, on economic plenty, all of these things. Um, but the, the, so while the makeup of the utopia, the, the makeup of the, the, the way that this narrative was being delivered changed, um, it stayed relatively level as the, the key focus for the propagandists. And reading over your recent paper, looking at these images of utopia, there's also a great BBC News article, um, Fishing and Ultraviolence, that compacts your, your recent paper and has some really great images of the propaganda that you've seen during this report. And there are really striking images of, as you said, this idea of utopia, and they take it into agriculture, daily life, um, beautiful images of people harvesting grapes and beautiful nature scenes. And that's very striking that they're making out this new state that they've created to be this beautiful place. It's utopia. You want to come. But another thing that was very strong in looking over all the propaganda in these reports that you've done, both of them actually, is this idea of the Islamic State continuing on. So this idea of momentum moving forward and not regressing, um, not stopping, but plowing ahead to this new future. And I wonder if we could talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole kind of supremacy and triumphalist and momentum narrative that is inherent to so much of Islamic State's propaganda is a key part of its messaging. It, it really drives and lives off the fact that it's playing itself as the, the strongest player in this game, that it is a, a vanguard for Sunni Muslims, but it's not on the defensive, it's, it's very much on the offensive. I think that that's a, a really key nuance that, that we need to pick up on when trying to understand how Islamic State is selling itself to the rest of the world, be they jihadists or, or not jihadists, they can be adversaries as well. So if you just look at its military propaganda in particular, the, out of the 331 events, the vast, vast majority of them are focused on preparation, so kind of going over weapons, cleaning them, uh, training, that kind of thing. Uh, operations themselves, so showing a group of people attacking a tank or, or an actual raid itself, and also the aftermath. So be that kind of eulogizing martyrs, that's done in a kind of very uh, triumphalist way, but also going over the, the war booty and defiling the corpses of the, the enemy, that kind of thing. There's very little time spent at all on showing the defensive side of Islamic State's war. And of course, we know it's doing that a heck of a lot. Um, there are only, I think it was five or six uh, units of propaganda that showed anti-aircraft guns and, and, and that kind of thing that, that showed Islamic State on the defensive rather than on the offensive. And I think that it's important to recognize here that they don't want to be spending any time really on showing what's happening when they're being attacked. Because first of all, besides the obvious kind of operational security issues that, that arise from that, it also lends the wrong image, the wrong kind of brand to Islamic State. This organization that has really sought to, to forcefully and violently change the status quo in the region cannot be seen at any one time to be more uh, defending its borders than expanding them. I mean, its, it's motto 
remaining and expanding is very important here. It can only show itself really remaining and expanding. If it shows itself contracting, then that sends the complete wrong message. I mean, no one wants to join a sinking ship, even if they're a jihadist. So that's w- what Islamic State's doing by so- focusing so much time on on delivering images of its expansion or uh, sophistication, growing sophistication, or, or things like that. And something that comes across in my own research that I feel resonates very strongly with the Islamic State is to have an Islamic State, you need to have land, you need to have these regions that are under your control. So what you just mentioned makes complete sense, because without the land and without keeping it, protecting the borders, which, as you said, they're not going to show because they want to show that it's they're under control. But without that land, do they really have an Islamic State? Well, this is one of the, the key vulnerabilities of, of Islamic State that I think is recognized, but not, not quite to the degree that it, it should be or could be. I mean, it does have this, this land. It does have this territorial control in Syria and Iraq and, and Libya to an extent. I mean, I would argue, even though it does have provinces in, in uh, Afghanistan, um, Yemen and, uh, well, Egypt and um, West Africa as well, I don't think or at least we haven't seen much evidence of of kind of real state administration, state institutions there. So I think that those are more kind of satellites which are of symbolic value, but at least at the moment they don't have the same sort of territorial sophistication uh, as Islamic State's heartlands in in Syria and Iraq. I think the, the key thing here is that if Islamic State loses its territories, if its momentum narrative is is undercut by a resolute military loss, then that would actually damage its 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 momentum narrative a lot. I'm not saying that it would stop people from joining the group or or cause everyone to leave it, but so far it's not had any really really big hits against its its territorial control. So yes, it did lose Tel Abyad, and yes, that was an important city, strategic city on uh, the border with Turkey. But but really, I mean, it, it, it managed to, to recover from that very quickly. And it also took Ramadi and it took Palmyra in quick succession soon after. So clearly, uh, sorry, that uh, Ramadi and Palmyra were just before. But but in any in any case, it still managed to to keep its momentum on top of the keep its momentum kind of uh, the, the primary focus of the discourse on, on Islamic State. And that's, that's really important, the fact that it can keep hold of its territories. Um, were it to lose somewhere like Ramadi or, or Mosul, I mean, these are, these are things which are very far away. Uh, but, but were that to happen, then that would mean that it wouldn't be able to claim the fact that it's got God on its side. Of course, it would still do that. But its, it's whole kind of supremacist narrative, the fact that it is uh, divinely mandated and, and kind of expanding because of God's will, that would certainly be challenged a bit more. So really, one of the keys to Islamic State's success, and I think there's a, a CTC Sentinel article about this specific thing, it's fetish for expanding, for always being on the offensive. It, it's really important that it is, that it is constantly at least appearing dynamic, because without that it wouldn't have the same promise. It wouldn't have the same uh, ability to empower the people that join it. So I think that if the coalition is looking to, to, to challenge it meaningfully, both in information operations and military operations, 
taking a substantial block of land away from it, one that it's, it's bragged a lot about, boasted a lot about, uh, would, would really harm it quite, quite a great deal, actually. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. And do you think with what you found in this recent paper, the idea of focusing on different important factors that the Islamic State is finding important, so less on recruitment, I think you found in this mm. recent paper than the last, do you think that will eventually hurt the Islamic State in the sense that to continue on to expand borders, they are going to need people, they're going to need forces, mm. boots on the ground, so to speak, um, and a lack of strong recruitment, is that going to come back at them in the future and cause an issue for them? I think in a lot of Western analysis of what's going on in Iraq and Syria with Islamic State, the, the, the preoccupation is with foreign fighters. Why are our citizens going to join its caliphate? Why, why are our young people going to fight for an organization which is totally abhorrent? Um, certainly it is important to look at that, but also it does uh, take us away from, from what I would argue is the bigger issue, the fact that it's existing and it's managing to perpetuate ex its existence pretty well. The fact is that if we focus all of our uh, kind of information operations on trying to to stop people from going to join it, but specifically stop people in the West from going to join it, then we're missing out a huge amount of people. And I think that the priority at the moment for a lot of these campaigns is to, to stop young Westerners going. Uh, but But really we need to be looking at challenging the, the the thing at its roots and those roots are the the political economic social circumstances in iraq and syria right now what islamic state's doing with all of this propaganda especially but not exclusively its utopia themed propaganda is it's building its own very compelling very comprehensive multifaceted story it's selling itself as a practical alternative to the status quo for people both within and without the region. But but one of the key things is that while foreign fighters are important to it, I, I think the vast majority of the people who are fighting for it, perhaps not the vast majority, but certainly the majority of the people who are fighting for it, they are not foreign fighters. They are people who are choosing to go for Islamic State because it is their vanguard. They view it and really believe that it is their revolutionary movement that can change their status, their, 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 their kind of grievances, um, and, and transform their immediate situation for the, the long term. And this is something that they're, they're doing out of desperation as much as anything else. And what Islamic State's propaganda is doing is building this whole narrative. It's really creating a sense that, yes, this is actually true, that they are reversing, in some cases directly reversing, uh, many years of marginalization and systemic persecution. So we need to be thinking about that as well as foreign fighters. And we need to be thinking about how the continued presence of Bashar al-Assad and the, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. Uh, but, but things like Bashar al-Assad, things like the crimes of the Shia militias, which are certainly... Um, on some occasions at the same scale as those of Islamic State. Uh, we need to be thinking about them as well as drivers for locals uh, to join the group or things that compound people's decisions and consolidate their decisions for, for, for sticking with the group in spite of the fact that you have all of these uh, 
very commendable attempts at, at counter messaging. But I think we just need to broaden the focus. So we're not just looking at Western radicalized individuals, but we're also looking at the people who are joining the group and, and often making up the, the bulk of its, uh, its military operations. And you noted in your report that through this time of both reports that you've done, you've noticed a change in the propaganda from when it first came onto the scene to now. And I was wondering if we could talk about these changes because I feel like they're quite important because something you just said sort of resonated in the idea that the propaganda is almost, in a sense, Islamic State creating its history, creating its future with these images and these messages that they're putting across. And I think the change in that also shows us where they're heading almost. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that the importance of Islamic State's propaganda really can't be overemphasized. I mean, I would say that being someone who spends all my time looking at it. But, but I mean, my own uh, focus aside, I think that it is of... Uh, certainly to an extent of existential value to the group because it's it's a way that it can build itself it's a way that it can put its roots deep as deep within the the fabric that that makes up the areas that it's controlling now um as is possible and if you consider that this propaganda isn't just being circulated on the internet but it's also being handed out it's it's being shown on video screens it's being shown on projectors it's being taught to kids it's being um, circulated in schools and old people's homes. It's, it's really ubiquitous within the areas controlled by Islamic State. And this is something that they're doing very deliberately. They are trying to make their image, their brand as ubiquitous as possible. Um, and certainly it's, it's a way of instilling a sense, and I say a sense, uh, of permanence to the group. It's trying to really ingrain itself within the areas that it is taking control of. And I mean, even when you, even when it moves into a new town or a new village, you'll see that some of the first things it does by its own, uh, propaganda admission, if you like, uh, some of the first things it does are put up a ton of Islamic state flags on all of the, uh, the streetlights and, and maybe put some Islamic state flags on a fountain or, or roundabout in the middle of town. Uh, but also what it does is is set up its media points. So you see them driving in big trucks with um, uh, kind of big MDF uh, uh, kind of like caravans that they just set up um, in the middle of town. They put some plastic chairs outside them and rig them up, put some electricity in them and then get them going. And then that's the propaganda side of uh, the, the physical propaganda side of its operations working pretty much immediately. They're putting a lot of effort into ingraining themselves in in the territories that that they've, they've moved into and it's not just to immediately uh convince people that they're they're doing the right thing but it's also to to try and bolster and reinforce their position in these places in some senses it reminds me of what we see in north korea this idea of a regime that's providing the information that they want their citizens to take on as their reality I think that's a, a really good comparison. I think that there's so much in Islamic State's propaganda that that comes straight from the rule books of totalitarian propagandizing. I mean, there are so many similarities, and it's so striking to me the fact that um, th 
evidently these guys know exactly what they're doing and there is a huge amount of strategy behind their thinking. It's not just let's make loads of videos, let's make loads of photo reports and, and really flood the internet with this stuff. So people from around the world see it and they're appalled at it and then people who aren't appalled at it, so they come and join us. It's much more than that. It's it's not just an online phenomenon. It's also a way of limiting what's happening offline. It's a way of flooding people's um, access to information with, with a very refined image of the caliphate. And when you consider that they don't let internet work and they're trying to well they do let it work but only for a certain few people a few designated people the, the group is trying to cut off as much access to information from the outside world as is possible and at, at the same time as cutting it off it's it's substituting it with something much more insidious uh, and something which is very very carefully refined I know I keep saying it's carefully refined but I think it's important to recognize that there is no single photo or video that manages to make it to the internet or to the, the TV screen of a, a media point in, in Raqqa province or, or wherever that hasn't been, uh, been carefully considered and there's nothing that, that can reach these screens which doesn't conform to the Islamic State brand. It's, it's very carefully rigged, it's very carefully choreographed and it's, it's something that we need to recognize. I, I, I strongly believe that, that it's as important offline as it is online. Um, and if we just focus on trying to understand propaganda through the lens of the effect it has on foreign fighters, then, then we're missing a, a large part of the issue. I completely agree. Taking this talk to the idea of counter-narrative, which of course is the big question out there, how do we counter this really refined narrative, this strong narrative that the Islamic State is putting out there, I get that we fully need to understand what they're doing both on social media, internet world, print, but also in the communities. So looking at that as a whole, how do we counter this narrative in a productive way, if even possible? Well, uh, sorry, I have to take a deep breath. I mean, <laughs> it's a big question. I completely yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think, there is uh, there is certainly uh, a great deal of different ways that we can begin to to challenge it. I think that first of all we have to recognise that that there is a lot that's being done already, and and of course we're never going to hear about the good work that's being done. I mean, it, it doesn't really uh, interest journalists to look at successes that are being had necessarily. Um, as much as it does to to look at the other side, the flip side, the the beheadings and the kind of awesome power of Islamic State's propaganda apparatus, that, that kind of thing. But but I think that there is a lot of uh, good work being done by uh, by states, by governments, uh, but also by uh, civil society organizations and third sector stuff as well. There's, there's a, a whole lot more that could be done. And I think that one thing that needs to needs to happen is a reappraisal of the, the, the direction that we're taking. So, and this is something that I do see happening uh, but but perhaps it needed to happen a, a, a little while ago, is that we need to look at this in a much more strategic manner, that by responding to individual acts of cruelty or individual pieces of propaganda or saying that Islamic State isn't Islamic or saying that Baghdadi isn't a Muslim, all of these things, yeah, they, they do have a part to play. 
but we really need to 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 recognize that it's something much bigger than this which is happening and that rather than predicating our entire response on countering something we need to be looking at creating an alternative for it and of course creating an alternative narrative is a lot more difficult than creating a counter counter narrative because you need to think outside the box you need to uh sorry if you're using that awful cliche but you do need to think outside the box and and base it upon uh something and again first of all just a, a caveat of course there's no single narrative alternative or counter or whatever that will be able to do this on its own it, it needs to be something there needs to be a, a proliferation of narratives um of all forms that that uh, challenge Islamic State's line, challenge its propaganda, just by their very existence, not because they're directly seeking to to tackle it, not because they're directly seeking to to undermine it, but just because they are alternatives. They're, they're something that people can rally around. I mean, Islamic State is a social movement, and it has icons, it has uh, a story, it has a trajectory. I think that somehow we need to create something which kind of mirrors that, obviously in a very different way, but, but something about which people can rally, something about, pitch, about which people can get excited. Um, and it's only through looking at it in a very strategic way, understanding that, that we can't just look at one small demographic, one small target audience, and we can't just target everyone with the same narrative. It's, it's, it's something which we need to take into account that by doing that, there's a, we're at risk of kind of structurally impairing ourselves from, from being able to, to make as much progress as we need to be making. Now, I do recognize that what I'm suggesting is, is uh, a pretty big, uh, big ask. And I'm also aware that I'm not uh, supplying any of, of these alternative narrative ideas. But I, I think that they can only come through a lot of thinking, a lot of people discussing, a lot of people engaging. And and one of the best ways to improve this situation, to, to try and tip the balances in, in the other direction for a change, is to empower people to, to engage with this. So open it up a bit, rather than uh, leaving it to a few civil society organizations or, or uh, state uh, endeavors, which of course are very commendable. But I think that we need to open it up a bit and get more people involved um, and not just states, not just civil society organizations, but but as many people as possible. It needs to be something which is uh, appealing to engage in. And I think that there are incentives that can be put that put in place to, to get people more animated about it. But but really, the the information war on Islamic State, and I really believe this is is as important as the, the military war. Um, I mean, I could argue also that it's more important in, in, in many ways. Um, but I think I'll temper, temper what I'm saying and just say it's as important for now. And as you said, you need something that's very appealing to a multitude of audiences because just personally there will be, say, a commercial that is on TV and it, it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't hit me the way that the marketers think it will. Mm. So there's that individuality factor of, what will resonate with one person might not resonate with another person. And that right there, as you said, it's a huge undertaking because that means you can't just have a couple cookie cutter ideas of countering the narrative. Here we go. We put this out there. It's good. So I hear what you're saying. It's a, a massive challenge. Yet 
a very important challenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you put it really well there. I think there is a tendency to rely on a couple of counter-narratives that have been doing the rounds for a while and, and hope that if you say them enough or if you say them in a slightly different way or if you get someone else to say them, then that will work to solve the problem. But but it's just not going to be like that. It's not that easy. Well, we always like to conclude our talk when we have the time to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that they haven't or that they'd like to or a final thought. So I will place you in that position. Okay. Well, I mean, I think one of the, the key things that this whole project um, – and, and broadly, the, the year before it was researched in the other um, paper, what, what both of them have kind of led me to, to come to understand is that, that really what we're dealing with here isn't just a bunch of kids who know how to use social media or a bunch of kids that have undergrad degrees in, in filmmaking. It's something much more complex than that, much more professional than that. And I really, really... Uh, desperately want to know who the guys are that are running this because it, it's it's much more than something which can be learned by trial and error. Certainly, there is a lot of trial and error uh, in this, but but the strategic thinking that that is happening behind this this vast propaganda machine and the the means by which it's become both centralized but also with a great many uh, and a great level of autonomy for its different provincial outlets, for example. I mean, it's it's an undertaking of, of really quite epic proportions and it's it's really quite striking to me that it does operate like this, that it can continue to operate like this and it's it's pretty damn relentless as well. Um, I think that it's uh, probably quite scary food for thought, but kind of considering Islamic State's propaganda machine in those terms, in, in terms of... Uh, I mean, professionalism is something which is always associated with it. But um, what I mean is professional propagandizing rather than professional filmmaking. I mean, they they really know what they're doing. And uh, I think if we're to to to, to meaningfully challenge them, um, we need to recognize the the adversary that we're dealing with. Well, I want to once again thank you for coming on the show, Charlie. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this recent paper and the last one. You've really produced some amazing pieces of work that, as I've said before in this talk, are really eye-opening to someone that's interested in this topic or resources it. So thank you so, so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. And uh, maybe next time I'll have a project which isn't to do with propaganda. Who knows? Who knows? Exactly. The future will tell. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.